All right. Can everybody hear me? Okay, great. Um, well, you know, when you get far away from the city lights, and uh, this is kind of a rural area, so you probably don't have to go too far, uh, but if you get away from the city lights uh, on a, a dark night out in the woods, you look up at the stars, it's very easy to affirm what the psalmist said. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament or the expanse shows his handiwork. I mean, it just seems so obvious, right? Who could deny that? But people do deny that. We're being told uh, that the heavens do not declare God's glory, but rather they are the result of a cosmic accident, an explosion, if you will, that they call the Big Bang. And supposedly our universe exploded into existence, and somehow from that we got stars and galaxies and people and plants and animals. Uh, let me just say that this Big Bang story is unbiblical. Okay? It contradicts Scripture at a whole lot of points. Uh, some Christians will try to tell you that the Big Bang was God's way of creating the universe, but if you really take seriously what the scriptures say, uh, that doesn't hold up. And it's got a lot of big scientific problems, too. Uh, the Big Bang has a really hard time explaining where stars come from. And there's billions of stars out there, and they're claiming to explain the origin of the universe, uh, and, and yet they can't explain where stars come from. Now, it's not that they don't have an explanation. They would claim that there are these giant gas clouds way out in space and that stars can form from those giant gas clouds. Uh, but what you find is when you look a little bit in more detail, basically those explanations require uh, shock waves from exploding stars. Supposedly those shock, those shock fronts hit this gas and compress it enough that gravity can take over and, and the, the gas can gets compressed a little bit more, and you get these stars being born. Now, can anybody see a kind of a problem with that story? Okay? You know, if you need, new, if you need stars already in existence to explain where stars come from, that doesn't work very well, does it? Okay? So I'm going to show you in the next slide what our night sky would look like in a Big Bang universe. Okay? Now, don't blink. This is a very exciting slide. I don't want you to miss it. But this is our night sky in a Big Bang universe. Okay? Now, see, if the Big Bang were true, there wouldn't be any stars. And that's just one of the problems with this Big Bang story. Now, a huge part of that story is that our universe is really, really, really old. They would claim it's almost 14 billion years old. And yet, uh, Scripture teaches a young universe. If you add up the numbers and the genealogies in Scripture, you get an age of about 6,000 years for the earth as well as the universe. And so, unfortunately, a lot of Christians start to wonder, well, could the Bible be wrong? Could the Bible be wrong about what it's saying about the age of the universe? Well, I want to reassure you this morning that the Bible is not wrong. It is absolutely correct. And recent creation, the, 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 crea the position that creation is recent, just a few thousand years ago, is both scientifically and logically reasonable. There are, there are people out there who will try to tell you that if you hold to a recent creation, you are committing intellectual suicide, but it's not true. And I want to give you three reasons that the recent creation position is reasonable. First, science cannot prove that the universe is old or young. Now, that may surprise you because you see all these TV shows that will tell you that science can do that, but it can't. And the reason for that is pretty simple. 
Age is not something that you can measure in a laboratory. There is no device out there that measures how old something is. Anytime you get an age assignment or an estimate of how old something is, it's a calculated number based on assumptions about the past. And those age estimates are only as good as the assumptions behind them. The problem is that creation and secular scientists have very different starting assumptions. Creation scientists affirm creation. We affirm a global flood as described in Scripture. And secular scientists deny those things. Now, they may disagree on a lot. Secular scientists disagree on a lot of things. But the one thing they all agree on is God did not make the universe in six days and there was not a global flood that destroyed the world, as the Bible says. That's the one thing they all agree on. And they hold to a philosophy called uniformitarianism that says the present is the key to the past. And the idea is that the things we see going on today, the processes that we see going on today, supposedly they've always operated at pretty much the same rates and intensities that they do today, and supposedly that's sufficient to account for earth history. And if you apply this philosophy of uniformitarianism to geology, they would say that because erosion today is slow and gradual, they would say it's always been slow and gradual. That, and that's how they would apply that uh, to geology. So first, science cannot prove that the universe is young. You can't prove that it's old either. Because every time you make these age estimates, you're, these are calculated numbers. However... Even when we are generous to the evolutionists, even when we make assumptions that are charitable to their uniformitarian beliefs, nearly all age estimates are incompatible with the Big Bang story. The age estimates that you get are much too short to be in good agreement with this Big Bang story. Okay? So the, the philosophy of uniformitarianism, we are arguing, is wrong. Okay, it contradicts the, uh, the Bible, but even if we assume these uniformitarian assumptions for the sake of argument and we turn the crank, we get age estimates that are still disagree with the Big Bang story. And what we will find is we will get maximum age estimates. You'll get a range of estimates, and those maximum possible ages are much too short to agree with 14 billion years. But because those are maximum possible ages, the true ages could be less than that. They could, in fact, be 6,000 years. And we're going to see an example here later in this discussion, Lord willing, uh, where spiral galaxies, secular scientists claim that those, some of these spiral galaxies are around 10 billion years old. And we're going to see evidence that they can't be more than 300 million years old. And that's an upper limit. Could they be just 6,000 years old? Yes, okay? So we're going to see an example of how these spiral galaxies, they contradict the Big Bang story, but the, the age estimates are consistent with biblical creation. And when you talk about this issue of the age of the universe, one thing that always comes up is this issue of distant starlight. How do we see light from galaxies that are billions of light years away? You know, the assumption is it surely must have taken billions of light, the uh, billions of years for that light to reach us. Now, this is something that creation scientists are still working on. I'm not, I'm not going to say that we've got the problem solved at this point, but before people dismiss biblical creation because of this issue, you need to understand 
The speed of light is just really weird to begin with. It's weird even before you start talking about distant starlight. And what I mean by that, the speed of light is always 186,000 miles per second, but it doesn't matter whether the light source is standing still, it's coming toward you, or it's moving away from you. Let me, let me give you an example to show you just how weird this is. Let's suppose that you're standing on the side of the road, and there's a car coming toward you at 50 miles an hour, and in the passenger seat of the car is a professional baseball player. And so they unroll the sunroof, they open the sunroof, he stands up, and he throws a baseball at 100 miles an hour. So how fast are you going to see that baseball coming toward you? Right, the car is already moving at 50 miles per hour. You add 100 miles per hour to that, you're going to see it come at, toward you at 150 miles per hour, right? So let's replace the car with a spaceship. Let's say you're way out in space and there's this spaceship coming toward you. Let's say it has warp drive technology and it's coming toward you at almost the speed of light, just a little bit shy of the speed of light, and it shines a light, okay? It turns on a light. How fast are you going to see that light coming toward you? Well, you would think it would, the speed would be approximately 186,000 miles per second plus another 186,000 miles per second, right? Which is what? 372,000 miles per second. No. The speed is 186,000 miles per second. Doesn't matter if the, the light source is standing still, whether it's moving away from you or whether it's coming toward you. And that's really kind of weird. And this is one of the things that led to Einstein's theory of relativity. And you get the, this is why you get these weird effects like clocks ticking at different rates and so on and so forth. And creation scientists think, most of them, that the answer to this issue involves relativity theory in some form or fashion. Okay? So even though this is something we may not have completely solved at this point, you need to keep that in mind when someone challenges you with this issue. It's more complicated than most people think. All right, so, but anyway, nevertheless, when we, when we make these uh, calculations, most calculated ages are much too young to be in good agreement with the Big Bang story. And finally, we're going to see examples of how a creation physicist took biblical assumptions, he took the Bible seriously, and he was able to make a, a whole slew of successful predictions about the magnetism of bodies in our solar system. How many of you have ever heard creation scientists don't make predictions? Okay, that's a claim that you hear a lot, but it's not true. And we're going to see examples of that this morning. So having gotten that introductory information out of the way, let's start our tour. Uh, we're going to start outside our Milky Way galaxy, and we're going to fly in really, really fast and uh, move toward our solar system. And the first object in our solar system we're going to look at is our sun. And the sun, like all stars, is a problem for the Big Bang. Uh, you know, again, we've got this story they're telling about these clouds of gas that can slowly turn into stars as well as the planets. And they call this the nebular theory. Okay, and the idea is that you have this big spinning cloud of gas and eventually uh, somehow it contracts over time and you get a star, and you get the planets, and all that. One of the big problems with this story is that it appears to violate a very important rule in physics called conservation of angular momentum. And you've all seen examples of this when you have a figure skater out on the ice, and she's spinning, 
and she brings her arms and legs closer to her torso, what happens? She spins faster, right? Okay, that is the result of conservation of angular momentum. Well, you would expect something like this to happen. Remember, the sun has almost, it really, 99% of all the mass of the solar system. So as far as its mass is concerned, it is the solar system. So secular scientists are claiming that you have this humongous gas cloud that is light years across and that it got really, really, really small, okay, and it's spinning, and as it gets smaller, what should, what should happen? What did the figure skater do when she got smaller, if you will? She spun faster. So you would expect the sun ought to be spinning really, really, really fast, but it's not. And secular scientists are very aware of this problem, and they've got all these ideas to try to make this work, but none of them are really very convincing. So that is a huge problem for, the, for just the origin of our own sun. Likewise, we see evidence of design in our sun. It is very well behaved. When we look at other stars that are similar to our sun, uh, we see that it is very well behaved. Some of these other stars, they will emit these super flares of radiation. And let's just say if our sun did that, it would be really ruin our day. Okay? It would be very bad news if that would happen to us. We ought to be grateful that God designed our sun that way. You know, you will hear secular scientists say, oh, our sun is just an average run-of-the-mill star. There's nothing special about it. That just is flat-out not true. Even secular scientists are starting to recognize that our sun is very special. It's much better behaved than other stars that look very similar to it. Uh, likewise, there's no good reason to think that the sun has to be billions of years old. In fact... There was a solar astronomer named John Eddy who years ago created a bit of a fuss when he said, you know, I think we could live with an age of 6,000 years for the earth and the sun. He said, I don't think there's much in the way of actual observational evidence to contradict that. And that's exactly what we creationists would say. There's no good reason that you have to assume that the sun is billions of years old. Furthermore, if you assume that it is billions of years old, it creates a problem for the evolutionary story. There's something called the young faint sun paradox. And ironically, it was the late Carl Sagan who was one of the first people to point this out. The problem is, is that if you believe the sun is billions of years old, you expect the sun to change over billions of years and to change dramatically. In fact, if you, if you think backwards... Billions of years ago, the sun should have been a lot dimmer than it is today. And that means the earth would have been receiving a lot less sunlight. In fact, the earth would have been so cold, the ocean should have frozen. The problem is that most evolutionists will tell you that billions of years ago, when life was supposedly getting started, the earth was warm. So you see what the problem is? You have one part of the evolutionary story is contradicting another part of the evolutionary story. But if the sun is just a few thousand years old, you don't expect it to undergo dramatic changes in just a few thousand years. Now, sometimes you will see on the Internet there will be articles claiming that they've solved this problem. Here's one from 2010 claiming they've solved it. But then a year later they said, oops, no, uh, not, so, not so much. We didn't actually solve it. Then back in 2013 they said, well, maybe we've solved it again. Uh, but back in 2016, they're still working on it. So you kind of get the idea, right? Okay, they will claim every now and then they solved it, but they really haven't. This is a problem if you believe in billions of years. Okay, so the sun uh, is evidence of design and it's evidence of youth. 
So now we're going to go to the innermost planet, Mercury. And how, much of, how many of you bet uh, that the Lord will make us change the names of these planets when he comes back? It's, it's just a hunch I have. Uh, but Mercury uh, shows indications of youth. It has a magnetic field. Now, why is that a problem if you're an evolutionist? Well, evolutionists think that in order for a planet or moon to have a magnetic field, it's got to have a, a hot core, and, and part of that core has to be molten. It's got to be a fluid that can move around. The problem is that when you have a small body like Mercury, it's going to cool off over billions of years, and that, that fluid core ought to freeze solid. Okay, so you don't expect it to have a liquid core or outer core after billions of years. And yet, Mercury does have a magnetic field. And that's a problem if you think it's billions of years old because it should not be able to have a magnetic field after billions of years. So they were very surprised by this. On the other hand, Russ Humphreys, who's a creation physicist, he predicted back in 1984 that the oldest rocks on Mercury, the oldest volcanic or igneous rocks on Mercury, they ought to have a record of past magnetism. You know, when these volcanic rocks cool, there are magnetic minerals that line up with the magnetic field. And he predicted the oldest volcanic rocks on Mercury ought to have a record of that. And this was way back in 1984. Well, guess what? When the messenger spacecraft flew by Mercury, sure enough, they found evidence of magnetism in the oldest volcanic rocks. Now, we don't accept that age of 3.8 billion years, okay? But these radioisotope dates can sometimes be accurate in a relative sense, even if they're not correct in an absolute sense. So you have these older rocks on Mercury that have a record of magnetism, just like Russ Humphreys predicted. He also predicted that there would be a noticeable decrease of something called the magnetic moment or the magnetic dipole moment of Mercury uh, between 1975 and 2011. Now, the magnetic dipole moment is just a number that if you know it, you can figure out uh, the biggest part of the magnetic field. Well, it turned out Russ wasn't exactly right. The actual decrease was even bigger than what he thought. But keep in mind that evolutionists didn't expect Mercury to have a magnetic field at all, let alone one that was changing rapidly in just, you know, 36 years. So, so we see that Russ is doing pretty well on his predict predictions here. So now we're going to go, we're going to go off some more. We're going to go to Venus, but first we're going to fly by a comet, and we're going to see why comets are a problem if you believe in billions of years. Now, Comets, you know, they, they've got ices on, on this body, these bodies, these nuclei, and as they get close to the sun, the radiation from the sun vaporizes those ices, and you get these beautiful tails. So they lose mass every time they come near the sun. They're kind of like melting ice cream cones, right? And the question is, if these comets are billions of years old, what is what, what secular scientists claim, why do we still see comets? Why are they still visible? Now, secular scientists are well aware of this problem. They claim that there are these comet reservoirs out there that can replenish the comets. Okay, and over the years, their explanations have gotten really complicated. Uh, they need two reservoirs because comets have different characteristics. Uh, some of them have, they take a long time to go around the sun. Uh, others take a short amount of time, and, you, and they have different orbital characteristics. And you have to try to explain all of that. 
So just to give you an example of one of the problems, you know, there's, there are comets out there that are similar to Halley's Comet. They have similar orbital characteristics. And they said, well, you know, maybe there's this thing out there called the scattered disk. It's these bodies way out, way out at the edge of the solar system. Maybe that could explain where these Halley comets come from. The problem is even they admit there's not enough material out there for this to work. So they said, okay, well, maybe, maybe this other reservoir would work. Maybe the Oort cloud would explain this. Well, guess what? Even the late Carl Sagan said there's not a shred of evidence this Oort cloud even exists. Okay, you will hear people talk about the Oort cloud. You need to understand it's totally hypothetical. There's zero evidence that it even exists. So these reservoirs they have, they don't work very well to explain comets. And so comets are a valid argument for a young solar system. So now we're going to go to Venus, and Venus is a problem for evolutionists because it spins backwards. Remember, they've got this story that says the solar system formed from this rotating cloud of gas, so everything ought to be spinning the same way. All the, spin, all the planets should be orbiting the sun in the same way, okay, and they pretty much do that. Uh, some of them have inclined orbits. But they also ought to be spinning on their axis the same way. And Venus doesn't do that. It spins the wrong way. So this is a problem for this story that they use to explain where the solar system came from. Okay, likewise, if you look at the surface of Venus, uh, there aren't a lot of craters. And the craters are fairly well distributed. They're uniformly distributed on the surface. And we see evidence of recent lava flows. And that's evidence that the surface of Venus is young. Okay, now they would still claim it's hundreds of millions of years old, if not a billion years old, but compared to the total age of the solar system, that's young. And that really bothers secular scientists because you need some kind of catastrophe to explain how the surface of Venus got overturned, you know, maybe a billion years ago. And this scientist said, you know, I, I can't explain this using uniformitarianism. Remember that philosophy we mentioned earlier? He can't explain it by uniformitarianism, so he's saying we, may, we have to use some kind of catastrophe. And you can tell he doesn't like that. Now, why would it bother secular scientists so much that they would have trouble explaining the geology on Venus with uniformitarianism? It's because if you've got evidence of catastrophe on Venus, maybe there's evidence of catastrophe on Earth. And what if that catastrophe involves a lot of water and sounds a lot like the biblical flood? Now you start to see why they start getting nervous. You know, there's a saying, people will believe anything so long as it's not in the Bible. You know, if it weren't for the fact that the Bible described a global flood destroying the earth, nobody would have any problem with the idea that the earth was flooded. And we're going to see examples of that later. But because the Bible does say it, uh, they reject its testimony. So now we're going to go to another planet. I hope you recognize this one. Uh, this one should be kind of familiar, uh, but it's Earth. And we see strong evidence that the Earth was flooded. 71% of the Earth's surface is still underwater. Uh, most of the land surface is covered by water-deposited rocks, and within those rocks are the remains of billions of fossilized plants and animals. And so when you look at the, the Grand Canyon, you can see those, those water-deposited rocks, and we are arguing that that is from the Genesis Flood. And so these rocks and fossils, rather than being evidence for millions of years, no, they're evidence for the Flood. And if you take away the millions of years, where is the evidence for millions of years? 
Remember, they're claiming the rocks and fossils are evidence for those millions of years. Uh, we also see evidence that Earth's magnetic field is young. Uh, secular scientists cannot explain how the Earth's magnetic field could ma be maintained for billions of years. Okay? Uh, this is very closely related to the problems with mercury. Um, they, they've got a theory. They call it the dynamo theory. The problem is they've been working on it for 100 years, and they still can't get it to work. And not too long ago, one secular scientist said, we understand it less well now than we thought we did a decade ago. It's even worse than that, though, because the energy of the field is decaying very rapidly. And when you run the numbers backwards, the Earth's magnetic field can really only be a few tens of thousands of years old. Uh, because if you go too far back in time, the energy of the field is so strong it would melt the Earth's crust. So this is a huge problem for secular scientists. And by the way, Russ Humphreys made some other successful predictions. He predicted that there would be evidence that these magnetic field, the Earth's magnetic field has flipped in the past and flipped very rapidly. Now, secular scientists believe this too, but they claim that these reversals occurred over hundreds of thousands or millions of years, and we're saying these were caused by the flood. And he actually made a successful prediction and said, look, if you find some of these thin lava flows, you may see evidence of rapid reversals of the Earth's magnetic field where the field changed direction quickly. And sure enough, uh, that prediction was confirmed, and it's been subsequently confirmed even by other secular scientists. So uh, the Earth, again, is evidence of youth in our solar system. Now we're going to go to the moon, and the moon is tough for secular scientists to explain. They have a really hard time explaining where it came from. And there was a Harvard astrophysicist who said this. He said, the best explanation for the moon is observational error. The moon doesn't exist. Okay, that ought to give you an idea of just how hard it is for them to explain the moon. So I don't know how this is supposed to work. I guess... The moon's playing peekaboo with us or something. I, I don't know how that works. But not only is it hard for them to explain where the moon came from, the moon is young. Now, there's geological evidence that it's young. There are these features on the moon called scarps, which are these embankments that are thought to have been lifted up recently because the moon is cooling off, the crust is contracting, and you're getting these, these embankments to be formed. That's an, and not only that, but we see craters... You look up there in the corner, in the inset there, there's craters that have been distorted by that. And those craters are also thought to be very young. So this means the moon has been geologically active relatively recently. There's also the phenomenon of what they call transient lunar phenomena, where occasionally people will see flashes of light on the moon. Uh, this was one that was taken, uh, observed in 1953, and you may have heard about the last lunar eclipse. There was actually one of these things where they saw a meteorite hit the moon. Now, the meteorites may not be a big deal, but some people think that some of these could be evidence of volcanic activity on the moon, that it could still be going on. And yet secular scientists for a long time insisted that the moon was geologically dead for the last three billion years. Uh, we also see evidence that the moon once had a strong magnetic field, and that is very tough for secular scientists to explain. That's even harder for them to explain than the Earth's magnetic field. So again, we see evidence of youth on the moon itself. Uh, now we're going to go to the red planet, uh, Mars. And, uh, you know, Mars, uh, the secular scientists desperately want to find evidence of life on Mars or in space. They haven't found it. So far, there's no evidence of that. And they also think, interestingly, they believe there was catastrophic flooding on Mars, as, as uh, Dr. Galusa pointed out last night. 
Uh, and nobody has a problem with that. In fact, we creationists think, yeah, there probably was catastrophic flooding on Mars. But what's weird is you look at Earth today, it's got all this water. They say there was no evidence for a worldwide flood. Doesn't that seem a little weird, a little inconsistent? But again, Russ made another successful prediction. He predicted that the oldest volcanic rocks on Mars should have that magnetism. Sure enough, that was recently confirmed. And again, we don't accept that age of billions of years, but those volcanic rocks are probably older volcanic rocks on Mars. Okay, so now we're going to go to the outer planets, and we're going to go to Jupiter. Uh, And of course, it's the largest uh, planet in our solar system. Uh, But Jupiter is interesting because it is giving off about twice as much energy as it receives from the sun. So it's cooling off. It's kind of like when you take a potato out of the oven. It's going to stay warm for a while, but it's eventually going to cool off. And you would think that after billions of years, Jupiter should have cooled off by now. Uh, It it should just not be giving off this much energy. But of course, if it's just 6,000 years old, there's no problem. So this is evidence that Jupiter is young. Now, secular scientists, they know about this. They've come up with explanations to try to explain this. I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but none of these explanations work very well. So this is a real problem if you believe the solar system is billions of years old. Okay, now, but we're also going to look at some of the moons of Jupiter. This is Io. It's the most volcanically active body in the solar system. And it kind of looks like a pizza. Uh, But the problem for them, again, is how does this small body retain energy to drive this volcanic activity for billions of years? Now, to be fair, if a, a number of things go their way, secular scientists might be able to explain this. But it's kind of a long shot. Um... There's another moon of uh, Jupiter, Ganymede. It, too, has a magnetic field, and it's a problem for them for the same reason that Mercury's magnetic field is a problem. It should not have a magnetic field after billions of years. Of course, if it's just thousands of years old, there's no problem, right? Uh, So now we can go, uh, we're going to go on to Saturn. And, of course, Saturn is well known for its, its beautiful rings, And those rings are young. Even the secular scientists admit that they are relatively young. The reason for that is when these rings are made of icy particles, and those icy particles are constantly being bombarded by tiny meteorites. And so they're getting dark. They're getting dark and sooty over time, and you would expect after billions of years, they should be very dark. They should not be nice and shiny and pretty like they are today. And so not that long ago, scientists admitted these these rings cannot possibly be more than 300 million years old. And just a few weeks ago, they lowered that estimate even more and said they can't be more than 100 million years old. And they can't last for more than 100 million years. Okay? Now, could they just be 6,000 years old? Yes, they certainly could. Now, they would much prefer the rings to be the same age as Saturn itself because if you try to say that the rings came along later... It's much harder to explain where they came from. So they don't like the fact that those rings are young. Uh, Titan is one of the moons uh, of Saturn. It's it's got uh, methane in its atmosphere. It's not the major component of its atmosphere, but it has methane in there. That methane is being destroyed by ultraviolet radiation. And you would expect that as a result of this chemistry, there ought to be these giant ethane lakes on the uh, really not lakes ocean really a global ocean of ethane on titan uh, but we don't see that and there's no evidence uh, that the methane's being replenished 
And even the secular scientists admit, really, this cannot be more than 100 million years old. But remember, that's a maximum possible age. Could it be just 6,000 years old? Of course. And we would argue this is consistent with recent creation. Um, We're going to go now to Uranus, which is another one of the, the gas giants. And Uranus also is a problem for secular scientists because it's tilted sideways. Now remember, again, they're claiming the solar system formed from this spinning cloud of gas and dust. So everything ought to be spinning the same way. Okay, but you know, the, the, their spin axes as they're going around on their axis ought to be pretty much pointing straight up. But Uranus is tilted sideways. That is totally unexpected. And that's a problem if you believe in this 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 nebular theory. Now, uh, guess what? Russ Humphreys made another successful prediction. He predicted back in 1984 that the magnetic moment of Uranus would be this really big number. <laughs> okay. uh, well, uh, it's uh, one followed by 24 zeros, and the units are amperes times meters squared. Well, guess what? When Voyager flew by there in 1986, he was right. It was close to that number. Okay, now why did Russ make that prediction? Well, he took 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5 very seriously that says that God made the heavens out of water. And he thinks he actually made the heavenly bodies themselves out of water. He made some basic physical assumptions. He turned the crank, and sure enough, he was able to make a successful prediction. Okay, and guess what? We're going to see that he did the same thing for Neptune. Uh, when you go to Neptune, Neptune is similar uh, to Jupiter in that it's giving off way too much energy. It's losing energy too rapidly. How could, that, how could it still have all this energy after billions of years? Okay, that's another problem. But again, Russ predicted that its magnetic moment would be the, very close to that of Uranus, and sure enough, he got the right answer. So you see that Russ has had all these successful predictions. How are the secular scientists doing about making these predictions about magnetism of bodies in our solar system. Well, this is what one physicist said back in 1989. You would have thought that we would have given up guessing about planetary magnetic fields after being wrong at nearly every planet in the solar system. Okay, so they don't have a very good track record. But creation scientists do when it comes to successfully predicting the magnetism of bodies in our solar system. And the reason Russ Humphreys was able to do that was because he took the Bible seriously. Uh, we've got Pluto, and it, it's been demoted. It's no longer considered a planet, uh, but we're going to talk about it anyway. It's considered a dwarf planet, and not too long ago, the New Horizons spacecraft flew by and found evidence of geological activity. And, of course, the secular scientists were very surprised by that. Well, we creationists weren't all that surprised. In fact, the day that New Horizons made its closest approach to Pluto, we ran this news article and said, hey, don't be surprised if this spacecraft turns up additional evidence of either design or youth. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Uh, you know, you, everybody's familiar, I think, with the big heart on Pluto. Well, if you look at the left lobe of that heart, there is not a single crater. And the secular scientists admit that it cannot possibly be more than 10 million years old. And they would say that probably there was some recent geological activity that basically repaved that part of the surface. And I think that's totally reasonable. Because even in 6,000 years, you'd expect there to be some craters, right? 
So there was probably some fairly recent geological activity that resurfaced the planet or that part of the body, the dwarf planet Pluto. The only problem if you're a secular scientist is that geological activity requires heat. And Pluto is this little bitty body way out in the solar system. It's real tiny. It's going to lose heat rapidly. So if you're an evolutionist, how do you explain how it's retained that energy for 4 billion years? So again, on Pluto, we see evidence of youth. Now we're going to, we're going to go outside our solar system. We're going to go outside our Milky Way galaxy. And even in our galaxy, we see evidence of youth. Uh, This is what we call a spiral galaxy. Uh, There's lots of them out there, and they slowly spin or rotate. But the different parts of the galaxies don't all spin or rotate at the same speed. Some parts spin faster than other parts, like the inner parts spin faster than the outer parts do. And so what happens is there's this winding effect where the spiral galaxy gets wound up over time, and it's going to look something like this, okay? You can see as as time goes by, the spiral structure is getting more and more distorted, and eventually you're not going to see it at all, okay? So if these galaxies, these spiral galaxies are billions of years old, like we're being told, why do they look like this and not like this? And even the secular scientists admit that you ought to start seeing this wind-up effect in just a few hundred million years, and yet we don't in galaxies that are supposed to be billions of years old. That is another indication of youth. We're going we're to go to a particular star in our Milky Way galaxy. It's called Alnitak, and it's one of the three stars in Orion's belt. It's that bottom left star there, and it's a hot blue star. Now, why are creation scientists interested in hot blue stars? Well, because even the secular scientists admit they should burn up their nuclear fuel and turn into something else in three million years. The hottest ones should not be able to re- may stick around for more than three million years. So if the universe is billions of years old, why do we still see these blue stars? Now, they will claim new stars are being formed. There are huge theoretical problems with that, and as we saw earlier, they don't even have an explanation where the first stars came from. So blue stars are another indicator of youth. Now, we're going to look here. I just want to show you these pretty these really, really, really pretty pictures here of all these stars. Uh, this is from our uh, DVD series, The Universe, A Journey Through God's Grand Design. And just remember that God created every single one of those stars, and he has a name for every one of them. That ought to give you an eye of just how awesome he is. So uh, that's pretty cool. So I hope I've, I've impressed upon you this morning that the recent creation position is reasonable, Okay, uh, you're not committing intellectual suicide despite what secular scientists will try to tell you. Science cannot prove that the universe is old or young because all these calculated estimates are based on assumptions about the past. But even if we make uniformitarian assumptions for the sake of argument and to be nice to the evolutionists, almost all of these age estimates are inconsistent with the billions of years required for the Big Bang. And finally, biblical assumptions enabled a creation physicist to make a whole slew of successful predictions about the magnetism of bodies in our solar system. Now, should any of this surprise us? No, because God's word tells us that we live in a young universe. 
Again, if you add up those numbers in Scripture, you don't get millions or billions of years. You get thousands of years. And the Lord Jesus himself, in at least three places in the gospel, explicitly or implicitly affirms a recent creation. Mark 10, 6, he talks about how from the beginning of the creation, God made Adam and Eve, not billions of years after an alleged Big Bang. And there are two other places where if you read it carefully, it also implies a recent creation. He talks about tribulation that has not been since the beginning of the creation. So the Lord Jesus is saying that tribulation, suffering, entered the world at the beginning of the creation. Not billions of years after an alleged big bang. Well, we know from scripture, suffering entered the world when Adam sinned, right at the very beginning. But if you believe in billions of years, there was no suffering in the universe for, for eons. Because you have to have life in order to experience suffering. And they, don't, they claim that life didn't come about until many billions of years later. And finally, the Lord talks about the blood of the prophets shed from the beginning. And he refers to Abel, who was killed very early in earth history. So contrary to what the secular scientists will tell you, the heavens really do declare God's glory. And we're reminded of the Psalms where it says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Amen. Uh, so uh, we've got, I uh, just want to give a little credit here for some of the sources for these images we've used. And let me tell you that we've got a lot more we want to show you. Uh, we've been working on a discovery center for science and earth history. It's really coming along. This is what it looks like at night. And we've got a planetarium that has 3D capability. Okay, the show that you're seeing here is not actually 3D, it's 2D. But even so, the people who saw it were blown away by it. Okay, so we're getting very excited about the opening for our Discovery Center, and we're hoping you'll get excited about it too. But we've got lots of resources for you dealing with these that answer these questions. Uh, our guide to creation basics talks about a lot of issues uh, in the creation evolution controversy, including the age of the universe uh, and refuting the Big Bang. We've also got creation basics and beyond that goes into a little more detail. Uh, we've got a bunch of resources that deal with astronomy, and I want to show you a little preview of uh, our DVD series, uh, Guide to the Universe. Uh, so here we, here we go. Okay, that looks pretty cool, and we've got some copies out there if you, if you want to go get one. Uh, but we've also got our free magazine, Axe and Flax. P please, if you have not signed up for it, please do so. Every month we've got articles answering the tough questions about creation versus evolution, and we've got a sign-up sheet out in the back. 